sermon reading, if you'd like to follow, is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their ways into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of deprived, depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Well, I'll be honest and say that uh, that passage is one of those ones that as you're looking at the roster, you hope, I'm hoping John's on. <laughs> uh, look, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name's Pete Stacey, if I haven't met you. And it's my birthday soon. And to give you just a little indication of how old I am, I was born before email, before Google, before mobile phones, and before these. <laughs> Aren't they fabulous? Yeah. Uh, I grew up. As an underliner. Who's an underliner when they're having their quiet times? Yeah. But, but if you don't have a really steady hand or if you're on a train, you're not crossing bits out, like it said underlining. So um, no longer a problem because of the highlighter. I found my old Bible this week. And really interesting, none of this passage that was just read was underlined. But it should have been because look at Paul's opening words. But mark this. <laughs> Obviously, I was reading, wasn't I? In other words, grab your highlighter. This is really important. Don't miss it. Uh, so, friends, as we look at this passage uh, and read what uh, Paul is saying to us, God wants us to understand it uh, so that we can live uh, according to Jesus' way in today's world. So let's ask God for his help and then look at, look at it together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you that you know all things. You know our hearts, you know our current circumstances, you know our joys and our frustrations, our strengths and our struggles. So please help us to understand your life-giving word now so we can build our lives on the solid foundation of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 1, let me give you the whole verse. It says, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. Be nice to avoid, wouldn't it? Doesn't sound too good. Question is, when are these last days? Well, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Joel, they all spoke of a future time called the last days when God would raise up the kingly line of David and draw all nations to himself and pour out his spirit on them. Jump forward to Hebrews chapter 1, we read this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the last days begins with Jesus and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. Acts chapter 2 gives us a little bit more insight. 
Jesus has just ascended to heaven with the promise that he's going to return one day and his spirit has been poured out on the apostles. There's quite a commotion going on. And the apostle Peter uh, explains the situation by quoting straight out of the book of Joel. In the last days, he says, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That's when Jesus returns again to judge and to save. So the last days is the time period from Jesus' first coming until his return, his second coming. So that, of course, includes us. We don't know exactly where we're at now. A lot of people think we're up near the end somewhere, but we don't know exactly. It's a time when God's Holy Spirit is poured out to bring salvation and transforming power to God's people. The most important thing for us to know is actually the final verse that Paul, uh, Peter quoted on that day. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, this is the stage in history when people of all nations uh, need to hear the gospel and be saved. Friends, it's a reminder to us not only to be saved ourselves by putting our trust in Jesus, but to be speaking good news. So that family and friends and teammates, school friends, the stranger on the bus, anyone and everyone might hear the good news about Jesus and be saved too. Now we could be forgiven for thinking that actually the last days will be better for God's people. And in many ways they are. I mean, we know who the Messiah is. We know Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. He broke the power of death and, and sin and, and saved by rising again, conquering death. And he reigns at the right hand of God and he has sent his Holy Spirit to live inside us. Friends, that's fantastic. But Paul, who at this point was chained in prison, wrote this passage to remind Timothy that as the last days unfold, there will be terrible times for everyone, but especially for those who follow Jesus and share the good news with others. And that's because sinful people will continue to sin and opposition to God and his people will continue to grow. Verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's quite a list, isn't it? It doesn't mean that all people will always be at their very, very worst. But the general pattern of sinfulness is on a downward slope. And as we seek to live for Jesus and share the good news, we will experience terrible times. 
It may be scoffing, ridicule, rejection. It may even impact our chances of employment or promotion. But, but when opposition to Jesus gains institutional power in, in governments or religious groups, the heat of persecution greatly increases. In some countries right now, Christians have to meet secretly. They risk interrogation, persecution, imprisonment, torture and death. Terrible times. Terrible times. When Timothy faced opposition, he may have been tempted to kind of oh, bunker down, you know, thinking that the hard times will pass. Then we can emerge and get on with uh, ministry for God again. But hard times will continue like waves of the sea again and again till Jesus returns. So we need to persevere in season and out of season. And we should never take for granted the more peaceful moments of history because another wave can come at any, any time. I think in our country, since white settlement, the church has enjoyed a pretty good relationship with the government overall. And Christians have enjoyed relative peace. But it is changing. And the advance of pluralism and secularism, pluralism uh, says there is no single truth, that, that all beliefs you know, are equal value. And sec secularism promotes life without any reference to God. And we're increasingly being pressured to adopt the godless values of these worldviews. And we're caught between following the majority, what's politically correct, fitting in with the attitudes and patterns of society around us, or following Jesus. And that tension is part of what makes these last days terrible. It's a struggle. As we look at history, and especially the 21st century, uh, it's easy to recognise the traits in the list in verses 2 to 4. Read the headlines. Watch the news. Listen to how people slander one another online. It's awful. But it's not just out there, is it? It's in here. We see all these same temptations in, in our own hearts. We can use these verses not just as, as a description of evil around us, but as a list to guide us in humble confession. Asking God to purge our hearts of these evils. And it is all about the heart, isn't it? Look at the word love. We know that God commands us to, to love him with our whole being, heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love our neighbours as ourselves. But what happens here? People love themselves. Love money. Love pleasure. And those things have replaced what? Love for God. And when a person swaps God... For self, all the things described in between those bookends start to flourish. People who love themselves become boastful, proud and abusive because they care more about themselves than about others. It damages family life. In the Greek, these are all expressed in negatives. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. It spills over and spoils every relationship, personally and in the workplace. Slanderous, you know, thinking or babbling the worst about others. 
without self-control. It's not that they don't know what's right, they just don't do it. Brutal. Thinking and treating people like dirt. It doesn't only refer to physical abuse, but also to emotional, mental abuse or neglect. Not lovers of the good. Not ignorant about what is good, just hating it and avoiding it. Treacherous, someone who's sneaky, untrustworthy, someone who will betray you to benefit themselves. Rash is the person who never thinks things through, who does and says things before considering the impact on others. And conceited. It's the person who is so focused on their own importance, they're blinded to the value of the people around them. We see this at every level of human society, don't we? And to some measure we see it in ourselves as well. And what we do next is what matters most. Friends, we must obey the gospel, which reminds us that no matter who, how we've sinned or who sinned against us, there's forgiveness for every sinner who turns to Christ. Our guilt is washed away. And the living power and presence of God's Holy Spirit is in our hearts to strengthen us not to sin. And to assure us that we are saved, not by being good enough ourselves, but because Jesus was good enough. And he gave his life on the cross for ours. Hallelujah. <clears throat> and this leads us to the next terrible danger in the last days. Some people use the appearance of religion but deny the life-saving power of the gospel. They use religion to enslave others, from verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Have nothing to do with such people, says Paul, strong ones. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul's mention of gullible women does not mean that all women are like this. In fact, the two women he has named earlier in this letter, Eunice and Lois, are two of the most outstanding examples of everything that he's teaching in the letter. It may have been a particular group of women. We don't have the detail. What we do know is that in Paul's day, women had a much lower uh, social status, and they were the ones in the home most often. And I think it's interesting that tonight in, uh, in our National Church Life Survey that we do every five years, um, nearly 60% of church attenders in Australia today are female, which suggests that women are more likely to find hope in some sort of religious belief. And men, that is not a compliment to us. We're vulnerable to false teaching too. Tragically, to comfort the ache in our soul then, we're more likely to turn to addictions like alcohol or gambling or pornography or become obsessed with work rather than turning to God. Friends, we all have feelings of frustration and dissatisfaction, weakness and sickness, fears and insecurity in our lives at times. And false teachers take advantage of any 
sense of need or, or, or personal weakness. Someone, as it says, loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires might be aching to be free of the bondage of that or the guilt that they carry. Now listen to anything. Someone always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth will latch on to any teaching or idea until they're bored or dissatisfied with it. The needs of our heart make us vulnerable and susceptible to religious voices that offer help and hope but distort or deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. Voices that say, you can have all the blessings of heaven right now. Perfect health and happiness and success and wealth. If you just have enough faith in our version of Jesus. Voices that say you have to belong to a particular brand of Christianity to really be saved. Or cults that promise community and freedom and life and deliver the opposite. Controlling your relationships, your money and your lifestyle. Now, I wish I was kind of preaching on the whole of chapter 3 because the next section talks about good teachers worth listening to. And the end of the chapter reveals the foundation of the truth, the God-breathed Word of God that is our authority in everything. God offers us the solid foundation of His truth in the Gospel message. Don't let pride block us from His truth. Don't let sin and guilt distance us from His truth. In the gospel. Don't let past failures and disappointments cause us to doubt his truth. Let us as a church community, as a family of God's people in this local area, let us hold tightly to the solid foundation of the gospel as revealed in his word. And sadly, friends, not all churches are doing that. I was grieved to see the news this week that the Anglican Church in Australia has now formally split. GAFCON, as as John shared, is a big part of that. Because of a fundamental difference in what we believe about God and His Word. The surface issue is homosexual marriage, but what lies beneath that and so many other issues is a profoundly different attitude and understanding of the Word of God. And when the senior leadership of a church or a denomination departs from God's word and changes the definition of the gospel and salvation and what it looks like to live a godly life, then God's word here, verse 5 says, have nothing to do with such people. It's a decision that should never be made lightly because it involves great personal pain, terrible times, breaks relationships, Of course, the media has a full day slamming the church and smearing the name of Christ. But if the central truths of the Bible are being distorted and we've tried to resolve conflict uh, like we looked at last week or or like Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18 and, and they've refused to come back to the truth of God's word, then God says, have nothing to do with such people. This is a hard teaching, friends, but it's the word of God. Verse 5, let's clarify, is not talking about people who are not yet believers and have all kinds of wrong ideas about God and the Bible. Keep loving, 
praying for them and sharing the good news with them, being careful not to be influenced by their godless approach to life. <coughs> you want to see them saved. But, but when a Christian leader is leading people away from the truth, plainly expressed in God's word, have nothing to do with such people. So why we sometimes say from the front of the church, as we're trying to explain what God's word is saying, have your Bible open. Check it out for yourself. Don't just trust John and I or any other teacher, Bible teacher you might hear. Look into God's word for yourself. It should be plain. We just want to explain what's already there clearly in Scripture. Paul then uses this Old Testament illustration uh, from verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also the teachers uh, opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, Genesis and Jambres are not named in the Old Testament. Ancient Jewish writings included them as chief... Um, I was going to say musicians. <laughs> chief magicians uh, and wise men uh, in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses and Aaron as they came to meet with Pharaoh. They even did sort of counterfeit miracles. You read about them in Exodus chapter 7. Now, the, a form of godliness... But without real power and in time, their folly became obvious to all because they could not match the power of God. Likewise, false teachers in any generation will not get very far because in time, their folly will be clear to everyone. It begs the question though, why has Paul spent so much ink warning Timothy and us about false teachers? Because they damage people. They damage people. They, you know, the ones who work their way into homes and mislead people. Last week we saw that they destroy the faith of some. We don't want to see that happen. False teaching flourishes until it is exposed and opposed. Only then, in time, their fall becomes clear to everyone. That's why Timothy, and I'll wrap up with this, that's why Timothy is to keep and guard the truth, to pass on the truth to reliable people who will teach others and to oppose those who advance false teaching. And as we've seen today, to resist sin of the world and the trap of the devil by building his life and ministry on the solid foundation of God's Word. Friends, we are to do the same. May God fill us with the courage and wisdom and perseverance we need.